Thought Process webinar podcast series. In this installment, Tim Rogers and Eric Orndorff discuss the essential leadership qualities of successful collaborators. Hey, thanks so much. Uh, this is uh, Tim Rogers speaking here. It is an honor, pleasure to be with all of you all. Wish I could see your faces and hear you, but uh, understand the limitations of this uh, format uh, for this. But I'll just say a, a brief hello to you and really, again, honored to be with you and working with Eric in this presentation. Um, one of the unique things perhaps about this is that we are essentially representatives of both the church and the state trying to figure out a way to work together uh, for the common good in our community. And we hope that if that is of interest to you, that this uh, time that we share can be a benefit to you as we tell a little bit of our story and kind of what drives us. So that's a little bit uh, of an overview. Um, Eric, did you want to say anything as we begin here this uh, this afternoon? No, Tim, just uh, reiterate, uh, we're, we're honored uh, to present to you and uh, hopefully you can get something out of it. Um, usually there is a linear approach of how good things happen, how you, uh, you know, devise a committee and those type of things. But uh, I think you'll hear that this was more of a genuine approach of people that just cared about uh, impoverished families, under-resourced families, and just coming together over a, a lot of lunches and uh, and just kind of figuring out what we could do best uh, for our community. So uh, I thank you for having us. Thanks, Eric. And uh, again, thank you all for for being here and for typing in your uh, summaries of who you are, where you're calling or in from, and how you're connected. It's great to read those as we even go through this presentation. So let me just frame this up for you. This is about collaborative leadership and our efforts uh, to work together in our community. Uh, engaging with the AHA process and uh, bridges, constructs, et cetera, to, to work here uh, in the Pequot Valley community, a rural area in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, about an hour west of Philadelphia is where we are. If you're familiar with Amish country, then you will have us nailed in terms of where we are. So uh, certainly a more rural area and one primary school district working with one, um, with a collection of churches of which at this point I'm a representative. Uh, so, um, Here's our story in collaborative leadership. As um, we begin this, we want to talk about what do we actually mean by our terms and by our words. What does collaborative um, leadership mean? And so we need to begin by talking about the question uh, here as you see what actually is collaboration. And to nuance that, we think of it in terms of its comparison to cooperation. Is there a difference between the two? Does it mean something different when I say collaborative leadership versus cooperative leadership? And how does that even work? And so as we think about that and how that plays out for, for us, coming back to the you know, origin of this word is helpful. Uh, you think about the etymology of this thing. It began by this uh, originally uh, in the French terminology back in 1855 to 60s when this term uh, came to bear based off of the Latin word laborate or to work together and then the co thrown in front of that. So it's this idea of working um, with someone to produce something. So as we compare collaborative leadership to cooperation, we are going to say that in our understanding and framework of collaboration, it is a more partner-intensive exercise than simply cooperation. Uh, we are working um, 
more intensively than simply knowing what's going on in other places and continuing to work on our own division or our own interest in the community and being aware of something. Rather, we want to step into the work of other people without getting in their way and ask, how can we make it better and how can we serve you? So collaborative leadership for us involves, for example, the church, not just sitting around and watching the church do church things and hoping the school does school things, but saying we want to do more than cooperate in a sense of understanding and agreeing with you. Can we meet with you, school leadership, and can we understand what's happening and how can we actually serve you and help forward your agenda and make your agenda uh, ours? So these were some of the questions that were underneath our um, working here of um, collaboration and moving beyond simply cooperation. So that's our framework when we think about collaboration versus cooperation, more partner intensive and working with someone specifically to produce something. So that's some of our background uh, with that. With that being said, Eric, you can feel free to comment on this one here. Yes, uh, just taking a look at uh, collaboration isn't about giving up our individuality. It's about realizing our greater potential. Um, as a superintendent, uh, usually uh, you start picking committees or groups to collaborate with using the job that they have. So, for instance, uh, I usually take a look and try to get a few people from the business community, try to get, of course, uh, a few teachers, a few administrators, a few community members. And I must say that this one, uh, like I said at, at the beginning, was very genuine in uh, three to four people getting together. And we were all like-minded people, wanted to do what's right for, uh, for our community. Um, so anyone that is thinking about really doing a collective impact uh, type project, really, I, I, I emphasize that. And if you don't hear me, at all the rest of the time, I think that's a great way uh, to start. And we, we believe, and we say this a lot of times, that all of us are smarter than one of us. And uh, since we are like-minded people, we are gonna, we're going to put uh, our ego and, and uh, take that out and, uh, and make sure that what we talk about is for the greater good and not just for any one of us. Um, so uh, we're real proud of that. And uh, we, we take a lot of pride in learning from one another and not just uh, bringing our expertise to the table. So uh, that is something that, that should be the foundation of creating any uh, group to collaborate with or any committee for a collective impact um, model. Back to you, Dan. That's good. Thank you, Eric. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Thank you. So uh, here's where we want to take it from here. If you can give me about five of your minutes here to, to walk with me through a little bit of history, and I want to explain why I want to do that. I want to look at a couple of these guys, the top one whom you will recognize for sure as our first president, uh, the bottom one I will talk to, uh, speak to in a moment. But here's why I want to talk about these men for a minute, because they both um, evidence something in their history and in their personality and in their work that is instructive for us, and I'm going to say us meaning at least in our context, that is instructive for us as we think about what makes a leader a collaborative leader, what, like what is the makeup 
of that person and of their values and ethos and all that beyond simply what are the top 10 practical tips for making a, a team function well and efficiency and all that, but what is the makeup of the individual? And I think we can learn something from Washington up here. So if you'll if you'll give me a couple of your minutes, settle in for a little bit, grab your coffee, whatever you got, and, uh, and give me just about five minutes. I'm going to share a little bit. Uh, part of this is written from uh, an author named Eric Metaxas. Maybe some of you heard that. He wrote a great book called Seven Men, a good summary of um, uh, many men throughout the uh, you know, throughout history, but here, here, here he goes talking a little bit about George Washington and how he comes. You know what we can learn from Washington. Uh, there's so much to say about Washington. It's hard to know where to begin. He says he's a man of tremendous contradictions. Uh, he is known, for example, as the father of our country, but he never fathered children himself, and he lost his own father when he was a young boy. The man who was viewed as a deeply honorable actually told some real whoppers when he was a young man, despite Parson Weems' fictitious episode by the cherry tree of I Cannot Tell a Lie. More than anyone else, he's responsible for freeing American colonists from the greatest military power on earth, the British Empire, and yet he held some 300 black men, women, and children in bondage at Mount Vernon. But here's the biggest contradiction. Washington was an extremely ambitious young man who worked hard to achieve fame, glory, land, and riches. And yet, at a pivotal moment in American history, he did something so selfless that it's difficult to fully fathom. So what did he do? In a nutshell, he voluntarily gave up incredible power. When you know the details of his sacrifice, it's hard to believe that he did what he did of his own free will, and yet he did it. The temptation not to surrender all that power must have been extraordinary. There are so many good reasons not to surrender it, but history records that he somehow did. Somehow he made an impossibly grand sacrifice, and in doing so, he dramatically changed the history of the world. Had Washington not been willing to do it, America as we know it almost certainly would not exist. And that is not hyperbole, he writes. Now, here, fast-forwarding through the life of Washington, when the Second Continental Congress met in May, they asked the question, who is going to bring together the 13 militias that need to be transformed into a single national army? Who can we bring out? Who will bring collaboration, cooperation, unity to bear with all of these different interests? Who is going to lead it and who will be successful at that? So on June 19, 1775, Washington answered the call at the age of 43. You know the story of the success that they had against fighting in the British Empire. Toward the end of that, this fear began to rise, and that is this fear of will the newly independent America end up with a military dictatorship, with Washington functioning as the chief, as a dictator in chief. And so here's where we get to something very interesting about Washington. Metaxas writes in his book, he said, Washington had made it clear in the very first year of the conflict that he was determined not to win the war against King George III, only to set himself up as a rival American tyrant once he had won. In a speech to New York leaders, Washington announced that in becoming a soldier, he did not lay aside the citizen, and that is he recognized civilian authority over the military. As historian Joseph Ellis describes it, his trademark decision to surrender power as commander-in-chief and then president was not a sign that he had conquered his ambitions, but rather, and then Ellis writes this, that he fully realized that all ambitions were inherently insatiable and unconquerable, and he knew himself well enough to resist the illusion that he transcended his human nature. Very powerful quote from Ellis. 
that at the end of the day, he knew that he could not resist this on his own. So he goes on to write, he knew himself well enough to resist the illusion that he transcended his human nature. Unlike Julius Caesar and Oliver Cromwell before him, and Napoleon, Lenin, and Mao after him, he understood the greater glory resided in posterity's judgment. If you aspire to live forever in the memory of future generations, you must demonstrate the ultimate self-confidence to leave the final judgment to them, and he did. And so this is Washington, what Washington brings to the table, that he knew himself well enough to say, something more has to be done. I, I cannot transcend this on my own, and so he voluntarily gave that up. Now, that's Washington. Now, briefly, the guy below him uh, is this guy named William Wilberforce. Some of you recognize that picture and know his story. Born in 1759, died in 1833. He was, Metaxas will write, the most successful social reformer in the history of the world. A very stark comment. And why is that? Metaxas will make the argument that he has changed the way that we see, even now in North America, you and I today, see the interest and need for social reform. It was um, Wilberforce who wrote himself after he, um, after in his case, he became a believer in, in, in Christ. After his conversion, he, he said this. He said, um, God has set before me two, object, two objects, two great objects. One is the suppression of the slave trade, and the second is the reformation of manners. If you're familiar with his story at all, um, you know that he was ultimately successful in working and abolishing the slave trade, a tremendous effort um, that he, he made. But what he meant by the reformation of manners is language we don't use today. And here's what he meant. Here's what Wilberforce was seeing in his day. He was seeing child labor was um, happening at a rampant level. Poor kids as young as five and six years old were often employed for 10 or 12-hour workdays in horrendous and often dangerous conditions. Then there was a problem of alcoholism, which was an epidemic of proportions that's hard to imagine for us today. There were um, sexual trafficking of women was another problem, the scope of which was significant. About 25% of all single women in London at this time were prostitutes, and their average age was 16. So one in four women on the average of 16 was a prostitute. In England at this time, in London at this time, there was extreme displays of animal cruelty, such as bull baiting and bear baiting were popular. And then when this was not available, public hangings uh, fit the bill. And after a public hanging, public dissections of the body were part of what happened for entertainment in London. People were put to death for the smallest offenses, and the conditions of the prisons were terrible. And so here's Wilberforce looking at all of this, and I don't know if you've ever looked at all this in your community, looking at all this and saying, what is going on and how can I make a difference in my community? And Wilberforce makes a difference. So here's, here's uh, what we see, that at the end of the day, Wilberforce moves in and through all kinds of people to, to make a change happen. And as Metaxas writes, he says, dramatic as it sounds, Wilberforce's tremendous efforts to change its mindset over the course of many decades can rightly be seen as one of the most significant accomplishments in history. 
These ideas were spread of reformation of manners were spread throughout the world, especially Western Europe and the, the United States of America. And he says, we in the West have been living with them ever since then, and we've gotten used to thinking this way, that we can hardly even imagine a world without them. We assume such ideas were always the norm, but the reality is precisely the opposite. And until Wilberforce and his friends were able to change the culture of elite London and England, these ideas of helping the poor and those less fortunate was essentially unknown. So what drove Wilberforce to do what he did? And here's what we see as Metaxas writes. He says, he seems to have been motivated by love, love of God and the love of his fellow man, more than by a simple sense of right and wrong or justice and injustice. This is probably the single most important factor in what he was able to do. Now, why do we share those two stories of these guys? Right, here's, here's the why. For both... Washington and Wilberforce, these men, along with other successful collaborative leaders, believed that only causes worth dying for or worth living for. The tasks they committed their lives to were therefore not designed to make them successful, but to bring success to those in the world around them. So underlying both of these men was this belief that I will use my strength and energy for the benefit of others. I'm going to subject my pride and be a humble leader in Washington. And in Wil with Wilberforce, I'm going to be motivated not just by what I see as right and wrong, but by a deep sense of love of God and love of people for all kinds and in all ways. That what drove them was not just that something was right or wrong, but that this fabric of the love for people. And we talk about it at um, Pequa Valley and at uh, Grace Point. Every story matters. Every kid matters. We're interested at a heart level of going beyond just I see something right or wrong. It's just simply not instructive enough to gain traction or heart to drive deep collaboration. So for us, when we look historically at these men and what they're able to accomplish systemically within their cultures, it's instructive to us to see the character and the nature of these uh, leaders. Some of you read Good to Great by Jim Collins. Uh, we're talking about level four versus level five leaders in this case. Level four um, if you have read that, you understand that. If not, I'm not going to go into that too much. But Tim might be having a couple issues with this story. internet. Why don't we? Um... All right, well, Eric, do you want to? This take is my over? this is my part anyway. If we want to go forward. <laughs> uh, this is Eric again. I'm superintendent of Peckway Valley School District. Just a little bit about our school as it relates to uh, poverty. Um, Twelve years ago, we were about twenty percent poverty rate. And um, right now we are sitting at about 52% poverty. Uh, we have uh, a big Amish contingency, um, and there's a lot of rental houses around because of all the building, and uh, sometimes they are rented for cheap, and, uh, and a lot of people are coming uh, because of that. Because of the, our poverty rate increasing, we had to do a lot of things differently. Um, we also have 1,700 kids. So not a lot of kids, but we have 86 square miles of territory when we're doing busing and transportation, which is a, a really big weight-bearing wall for us. Um, basically, how we got this started is uh, Tim came up to me and he said, uh, if, if our church could raise $25,000 for you, what would you do? And uh, basically, uh, I said I could do a lot more with $50,000, but um, at the same time, uh, we... Uh, started just chatting about what are those things that we can do if we could raise raise some money. So selfishly, 
as a superintendent, I was thinking more of what could he and uh, some of the other people that are in our Together initiative do for us. But uh, you'll find out when you're with a group of like-minded people and great people that truly care about kids, um, you start thinking the other way. And that's what's happened with our school district, which has made us a heck of a lot better. Um, so we started uh, what we call the uh, Together Initiative. And some of the things uh, that we have started with this, uh, just to give you a, a little bit of a, an idea of what we do, um, First of all, uh, give you our, our first initiative. We were having trouble as a school district with all the school funding issues um, actually paying for our summer school. So we have uh, uh, our free and reduced uh, students come and uh, so that they can really get caught up on, on reading and writing and math every year. And it was a staple for our district. Well, because of busing, um, it's about $40,000 to do this over the summer. So uh, one of the things that our collective impact and together initiative decided was what if we have it longer days and just have it three days a week instead of five days a week. So it cuts 40% uh, uh, of our busing cost. But what are we going to do with that time to make it worthwhile? So we, we always did the reading, writing and math. But uh, what Tim and, and Chuck Holt, who is a youth minister, who's a big part of this story, um, started doing was doing character ed lessons in the afternoon and just being that positive role model and building a connection to the school and the community with our kiddos. So just with that one thought, uh, we saved 40% of our uh, busing because of this collective impact Students were getting uh, a positive influence. They were getting a lot of reading and writing materials that they wouldn't have gotten. And uh, we were able to run our summer school and we still do to this day. So that's uh, this is on the fourth year running now that we will uh, team up together. Also, uh, before this started, we had 45 preschoolers that um, were under-resourced that weren't getting any preschool. And one of the things as the superintendent that I know, the earlier uh, you get to uh, students with reading and writing skills, the better off they'll be in the long run. Usually there's a gap in kindergarten depending on um, some of the resources that they either had or didn't have. And then that gap increases as they go K to 12. So uh, now I'm, I'm very happy to say that we have every uh, four-year-old attending preschool because of the collective impact grant from the United Way uh, that we received. And we only received that because they saw what Tim, uh, Chuck, and uh, our school district were doing and uh, many different sectors of our community were doing. And we were able to receive a pretty hefty grant and uh, very exciting to see parents crying as they're dropping off. Uh, their kiddos because now they have an opportunity to uh, compete with the other kids and uh, poverty was not the will not be an excuse uh, at Peckway Valley School District. Uh, we have also together done run, ride, walk and scoot events uh, where we're, we're trying to raise money, of course, for the greater good. The scoot is uh, well, the run and the walk is uh, is a 5K. And then we have also uh, some biking challenges. And the scoot is actually, we have, uh, like I said before, 
a large Amish contingency, so we wanted to allow them to come and bring their scooters also, so we have a little bit of a, a scooter race also. So just a great way to get the um, community involved, raising money and, and doing things for the greater good. Now, one of the things that the Together Initiative really talks about is providing hand ups, not handouts. And uh, a lot of this stuff, of course, we've gotten from uh, Ruby Payne and Bridges Out of Poverty and all that. So let me give you an idea of how we work together to provide hand ups. Um, we have given a lot of poverty workshops for our parents. Okay, if they attend those workshops, uh, they would get uh, something that is called Factory Bucks. Uh, Factory Bucks is basically uh, an organization. The factory is an organization to help out, the, of course, the greater good. And they actually have um, um, food pantries available for um, the uh, under-resourced families. Uh, so if you attend a poverty workshop, you will get some bucks to help feed your family, but only if you attend that workshop. How we did this with the school is if you come to a parent-teacher workshop, you will also get some factory bucks because we were constantly seeing the same students' parents and not seeing a lot of the under-resourced parents for different reasons, not judging them, but saying this is very important if we get the parents, the teachers, and the students all on the same page, we have a lot more success. So uh, if they do the right thing that way, then they would get factory bucks uh, to provide more food for their family. We also have done a lot of community picnics, just having fun together. Um, and we have a student mentoring program where uh, if anybody knows anything about mentoring or advisory programs, it's a lot better when you can do it with seven or eight kids instead of 25 kids. Well, if we would just do it with our teachers, we would have to do it uh, basically 20 or 25 to a teacher. But with using the community and Tim's resources and Chuck's resources, we can get that down to about 10 or 11, and we can really talk about their individualized learning plan, individualized learning opportunities, um, and really talk about goal setting because we find that a lot of our kiddos aren't having those dinner conversations that they need about what do they want to do when they grow up. So we feel like it is our job to provide that for them since they might not be getting that at home. So those are just some of the ways, and like, and like I said, because of all of this that we were doing for the greater good, the United Way um, funded a lot, a lot of this, uh, a lot of these opportunities for our kids because they they really felt that we were doing it the right way. First of all, let's get like-minded people that care about um, the community join forces, and uh, with their collective impact grant, they were able to uh, give us two hundred ninety-seven thousand dollars a year for the next three years. We, we basically have tried to find leaders that really led with their heart. And when we say we have like-minded people for the greater good, that's what we were kind of, I don't know if you call it recruiting, but at least trying to establish. Those that lead with the heart, uh, those that act with their heart, we want you part of the uh, Together Initiative. So um, one of the things that I get asked a lot when we go and talk uh, around the country and the state is, um, you know, how is a superintendent hooked up with, uh, um, you know, uh, ministers and pastors and church? Uh, are you willing to take that risk? And uh, one of the things that I went into the uh, superintendent.
tendency with was I, I, I wanted to make a difference. Um, and I, I get a lot of former superintendents that say, hey, your only job is to get reelected in four years. And I, I just don't believe that. Um, so that was a little bit of a risk, but knowing the people and and knowing that we are like-minded and we care about one another, I knew that Tim or Chuck or anybody from the church would not set me up in, the, in, in that way. So um, we, we basically like to say that we have certain sweet spots that we can work together and helping out the community and under-resourced people is, is a huge one for us. So for me, it's not much of a risk at all because it starts with the trust of the people. Thanks, Eric. And another aspect here for us is we talked about leadership qualities and making collaboration work is this idea that you don't need to be the smartest person in the room. Um, I, I know that Eric isn't the smartest person in the room. And and I know that I'm not either. So we uh, we have a good enough relationship to talk that way. So here's here's one of the things we mean by that. When we talk about collaboration. It's really all about building uh, trust. It, collaboration isn't about uh, the absence of conflict. And so it's an important distinction that I want to just push out on this. That constructive um, conflict uh, happens in the room. Destructive conflict happens after the meeting. So the goal is to get conflict in the room, and we have to have trust to do that. So our mistakes, we have to own. You know, when I make a mistake in whatever, you know, when I step ahead of Eric and I assume something or communicate that we should or shouldn't, and I need to continue to have the feedback loop going, I need to be asking for help. Um, some leaders that I'm aware of will simply do this or create a list of things that you know that you're bad at and and identify them and kind of grow in your self-awareness with that. Because if we can't identify the things within our network here that we're not good at, then people around us won't be able to talk with us about them, but they will talk to each other about them, which doesn't engender trust and doesn't engender collaboration. And so when I have some kind of vague awareness that I'm not the smartest person in the room, that isn't enough for us. We want to be able to know, you know what, I'm just not good at doing this or doing this or doing this, and this is why I need Eric. And when I identify those in meetings, identify those in um, you know lunches after the meeting or the hallways after the official meeting is over, when I identify not only the limitations I have but the strengths of the team members that are around me, it begins to engender trust and collaboration and allows for constructive conversation because people already know the things that I'm bad at it's just a matter of me giving them permission to actually talk about them so we can actually move forward. So this is a little bit more nuanced idea of not no need to be the smartest person in the room. But that to us is one of the essential qualities that make um, collaboration work. And uh, uh, the other, another one would be dissatisfaction uh, with the status quo. Um, just because we, we are leaders... Uh, with our, we lead with our heart, and uh, we we claim to be, I guess, nice people and care about people. Um, doesn't mean that we're not, you know, competitive people, and and sometimes have to lead with grit. Um, so uh, we we I talk to our administration at the school district about grit and and wanting to hire nice people but gritty people, and those those are people that do the right thing, not the the most popular thing, and that's hard to come by sometimes in in leadership and, and in administration. So uh, I will tell you that what, what uh, Tim was saying is totally correct. Within the room, 
we can be competitive. We can, uh, we can disagree. And, uh, but at the same time, when we leave the room, we're all leaving together and, uh, we all leave with, a, with a lot of trust. So, uh, this satisfaction with the status quo is, is not a bad thing at all. And, uh, we really take a look and, and say status quo a lot um, to challenge ourselves to get yeah, above that. That's exactly right. And one of the things when you are dissatisfied with the status quo is that you're going to um, you know, try things that don't always work. And so we've talked about the reality that we can live with messes. Uh, we have to be able to do that in order to move forward. Failure has to be an option. And uh, we've seen that. There are times when we've launched forward in initiatives um, together. And there hasn't always been clarity on what we should do. Uh, but we do talk, rightly or wrongly, that a good plan today is better than a perfect plan tomorrow. So we don't wait for things to be uh, totally nailed before we keep moving. We have to be able to function within uh, the messes that get created. And truthfully, it is always harder to move together as organizations than it is separately. It's always harder for the school to work with the church, to work with the nonprofit world, to work with the township leaders, to work with our political leaders, to work with our business leaders. Just, oh, we just know that. It's always harder. Because of that, we always leave little or big messes in the wake. But So we have to be able to function within some layer of ambiguity and mystery and difficulty in order for collaboration to, to be successful. And uh, we, we, we have a lot of sayings on the Together Initiative and at Pepway Valley, but um, we, we constantly are, are talking to ourselves about we is more important than me. And, and we, we've been talking a lot about that, but I think JFK said, uh, you know, we might not know everything, but if we know it's right, then uh, we should act on it. And I think when we go around the room and we all feel it in our gut that this is right for our kids and right for our family, uh, we do act on it. But it's very important that we feel that way and it's not just one person feeling that way and going in the wrong direction um so we also and, and i go back to people in relationships with almost everything that i talk about because that's what i really believe this is is it's about getting the right people putting them on the right seats of the buses of the bus and then building those relationships of, of trust when you do that you can tackle anything there is in your community so so we we uh, do talk about we is more important than me. And if we do see somebody that is going towards, hey, uh, you know, I'm a little better than most or I want to do this, I want to do that. We might say, hey, you're not part of the committee anymore because uh, you have some uh, different wants and needs, which is fine. But at the same time, uh, you're hurting the chemistry of the of the committee. And we've, we've had to do uh, some of that um, because we feel like we need to be gritty and actually um, do what's right for our kids in our community. So if it means that we're not going to stick together, uh, we're not going to have somebody on the yeah, go. And already. that grittiness goes into this next comment here, too, being patient and persistent. The idea that um, we this work of collaboration takes longer than working alone, and we need leaders who are just not going to give up when things are difficult. And that persistence of continuing to push through um, that we, we we don't need a sprinter. We need a committed marathon runner who runs uh, and trains and, and is willing to see it through the difficult stuff. So we've seen that, that there isn't always after every meeting this awesome feeling of you know, wonderful bliss of collaboration. Often we leave a meeting, we're like, man, are we getting anywhere? Like a, if we just step backwards, like five steps, you know, we really, but it's that, as someone once said, we, 
underestimate what we can get done in a um, long period of time and overestimate what we can get done in a short period of time. So there's a value and a strength to a long view of collaboration that takes sometimes our short-term attention spans and says, wait a minute, what if you would expand that instead of just trying to nail it all in six months or a year, what if you start taking a five-year, 10-year view of collaboration, maybe a 20, 30-year view, what can you get done if you're patient and persistent in the long run and have that kind of wherewithal in your character to keep driving it through. So we see that need uh, in, as part of our team of leaders to have those kind of leadership qualities. Yep, and uh, our, our next uh, leadership quality is, uh, you know, the art, and everybody knows this, the art of uh, listening skills. Uh, I learned a long time ago as superintendent that it's not about my answers, it's about the questions that I have. And and this whole thing started with a question when Tim came up to me. Um, and I think, uh, I've never really talked through this with Tim, but I, I think he was checking out, hey, what's this guy's character? What would he spend this money on? And that's a, that's a good thing. Um, so we were trying to get to know each other as we were trying mm -hmm. to form this. Um, but of course, the listening skills are probably one of the most important aspects uh, that we look for in our committee members. And uh, if you ever read uh, Total Leaders by Chuck Schwann, there's a time to be certain kind of leaders. So you can be visionary, you can be authentic, you can be quality, but sometimes it's just best to be a service mm -hmm. leader. So uh, I constantly, uh, I'm talking to our staff at the school district about, hey, if you don't know it, it doesn't mean you can't be a leader. It means that you might have to just serve, let some empower somebody else that has the expertise to do that. I see that a lot around our committee and we root for one another because we know what their expertise is and try to make them better by serving them. And that idea of serving um, comes right, in, right into this last thing that I'm going to say here, and that is, um, we find leaders uh, who are willing to collaborate, create buy-in with pull rather than push. I love the uh, image of an anchor uh, for this one. If you were uh, seeing a boat anchor that was, um, you know, on the on the shore on the dock, and you had to move it from where it was to somewhere else, you can do it in two ways. You can try to push that, and all the uh, chain links in that will all just mash up, or you can pull it along, and you'll actually get. To where you want to go and so this is this buy-in view of you know what i'm not jamming this down your throat we're not coming with our agenda to but rather we're coming underneath to serve and to ask the question how can we help and that underlying simple question how can we help that forward thing just keeps coming up over and over and over again from a church's side we want to ask just speaking from our church like we think in the we, we think in a try to think in biblical world do you and ask the question um if if our great um interest is love god with all our heart and also love our neighbor as ourself um, we want to love our neighbor not just individually but also organizationally and so if we have an organizational neighbor such as the school or the or the township or the business or whatever we want to come alongside that and say how can we help how can we serve and take on that agenda with them and make their interests ours so this is a creating of a buy-in um, with this kind of gentle but focused uh, and persistent and kind of dogged but humble uh, leadership as just part of uh, collaborative leadership. So that's that's some of what we have seen here over the years. And we leave this blank um, thing at the end because, you know, there's a ton more, I'm sure, that if, if you all could contribute now, 
uh, via audio. You certainly would if we were in a room. We'd ask you to hey, you know lay this out because you've seen and learned uh, things along the way that certainly can be added to this uh, list that Eric and I put together. But this list simply is a way to put into words some of the things that we found in the work between us. So, Eric, why don't you take this next one? I'll do one more, and then we're going to wrap it for Q&A. All right. Sounds good. Um, basically, the, the quote, the company owner doesn't need to win. The best idea does. And, and you've heard a lot of this. But, uh, again, we have a slogan that says, check your ego at the door. Uh, it is about the best idea, not uh, claiming to be the best person or anything like that. Um, one of my proudest moments was one of my first moments as superintendent when I uh, asked Chuck, who was a youth minister, and uh, Tim, who was a pastor, a well-known pastor in our community, to come to convocation. And uh, it was my first day as superintendent, so I didn't know if I was going to make it long or not, but I told the entire faculty and a lot of our community members that these two men are a huge part of our team. They might not be getting paid from our payroll, but they're a huge member of our team. And anybody that's interested in anything with collective impact or whatever needs to start with that and, and know that just your organization uh, might not be the only organization that you need because this is big and this is huge for everyone. And of course, the more we get together, the better things happen. And that's what we found out with, uh, with this uh, model that we have with the Together yeah. Initiative. And wrapping that up here, this quote that you probably heard from Peter Drucker before, we believe this is true. We've experienced this culture eat strategy for breakfast. So when we came together um, from the church and the school side and then from the nonprofit social services side um, and the township side, we did not, just our cards on the table in this one, right? we did not have a five-year plan. We didn't even have a, a two-year plan or even a one-year plan. We were just like, we need to get to know each other. We need to figure out who the right people in the room are and learn who actually wants to serve and better our community and begin to develop a team um, you know, process there for us. So the culture of the Together Initiative Network has really driven this thing well more than a strategy. Along the way, we certainly have developed some strategic answers we think to um, some problems in our community but it hasn't started there like a memo of understanding for example that we need we might need those along the way but it doesn't begin there i come to eric not saying hey let's make sure that we have like a prenuptial agreement before we get married not that eric and i would ever do that but the idea isn't let's agree on all the principles in the future it's more about um, let me understand your heart for where you are going and let me see, oh, you know what? You're trying to solve some of the same problems we are. So how can we begin to work on this together and kind of check our um, ego at the door there? So this culture eats strategy for breakfast, um, Peter Drucker really kind of draws to a close some of the things that um, we believe and we have seen that have worked for us. So with that being said, we have come to the end of this thing. Um, I don't know if there's any questions from the audience here or any other um commentary that you might like to make, Eric, but we uh, have a few minutes left in our, our time with everybody here. No, I would just, I would just say it's about, you know, it's about the connections. I'm, I'm learning this my fifth year as superintendent that if I connect two great people and get out of the way, usually good things happen. So, uh, you know, I see that there's 79 participants here. Uh, we would love to join forces with you with this really important deed that uh, I think we all have uh, some skin in the game with uh, really helping out the under-resourced families and the kids. Um, so 
Um, please look up Peckway Valley School District or Together Initiative Network or whatever you need to do. And uh, I, I would be glad to give any of my information. Um, and I know Tim is too, so we can uh, join forces and basically mm -hmm. practice what we preach. Mm -hmm. The first question I'm seeing is from Rick. Asks, uh, how do you get past someone who wants to dominate the process? That's, that's a good question. Mm -hmm. I'll take this one, Tim, first anyway. Um, we actually have that, and it's more um, in our school district, so I'll just take it from a, a group dynamic type way. Um, a, lot of, a lot of times, um, first of all, we, we discussed um, a book called, and I, I, don't, I can't remember the author, but Crucial Conversations. Um, and and the, the language in that book really helps us bring up some difficult issues. Okay, so in other words, instead of saying, hey, you're dominating, uh, we'll start saying, hey, can we have a crucial conversation here? And, and the book allows you or gives you some strategies in that. We've also done a lot with personality uh, traits and inventories that way and discovering your strengths and discussing strengths and weaknesses of one another. And then through that, it's almost uh, like the, the person's admitting some of their faults and then the whole group can adjust to those faults uh, if everybody's kind of... Uh, unpeeling the onion a little bit, it's a lot less uh, of an adverse situation uh, if you do it that way. So those would just be a, a few hints that I've used as a superintendent. And my only commentary addition to that is that sometimes, that was, I guess, Rick Miller. Rick, uh, we found that sometimes you can't, like, you can't get around them. You need to move them on if you can. And this could be a problem depending upon what kind of influence this person has. We had one individual in our community who is working in a, a medical-based um, solutions service for us that we thought we were going to use for um, part of our interest uh, there in providing a medical home for 100% for of people in our community. And it just wasn't working. Uh, we just continued to bump up against really uh, significant problems in the relationship and the values and the interests that they had. And they wanted to kind of, as you put it, dominate the process. So we... We ultimately just had to say, listen, I'm, I'm sorry, but we we will work with you as we're able, but we need to find another medical home solution. It just it just straight up, it's just not going to work. Um, and some of that is because they didn't check the boxes that we had laid out earlier. If here are some things that you need to have in a good collaborative leader. It just wasn't part of what they were about. So sometimes you can't. Um, but then sometimes you can just decide to work with them at a lesser degree. Um, if they're a person of influence, uh, who has a leadership position. If this is someone like an Eric Orndorff, who's a superintendent of the school and they want to dominate and they're just not playing ball in a collaborative way, sometimes you just got to say, you know what, then I'll work with the librarian. And as, as much as I can get done with her or him, I'll get done with them. And we'll collaborate at different levels if I can't get around that. Because Eric took over from someone else um, at Peckway Valley several years ago, and this level of collaboration would not have happened until we had Eric in that role. So it does matter who is there. Sometimes you can't, but sometimes you just have to scale down expectations on collaboration based on who can actually play ball well. Um, I see. So there's a take a simple question and then maybe a slightly more complicated one. Michelle is asking how large your school or perhaps your district is and how large your church is. Well, since we start with the school, I'll start, Tim. Um, we are... We have about 1,700 students, um, and uh, we have two elementaries, one middle school and a high school. And uh, like I said before, we're 86 square miles, so uh, 
we have a lot of farmland and uh, uh, a lot of uh, houses that are not next to each other. Let's just put it that way. So again, transportation uh, causes a lot of uh, um, problems for us. But again, through the uh, Together Initiative, we're talking about how we can... Uh, Yep, our church is about 250 people. We have about seven churches working in the collaborative now, which represents um, a couple thousand people who go to churches in our community who are working in collaboration with the school district, et cetera. Thanks. Uh, we might go back to Sharon's question here. It's a little bit of a longer question if you've had a chance to read it. Um, but mm -hmm. it looks like they're searching for a new superintendent using Jim Collins Good to Great. Um, and she's asking if you have any suggestions as to how they can take the district to a more collaborative position within the community. Um, I, I would, uh, again, I, I learned a lot through this whole uh, Together initiative, so I, I'm kind of just speaking from the heart. Uh, instead, of, instead of doing the textbook, hey, let's get a stakeholder from each sector, I would go with let's – Let's get the like-minded people that, that really lead with the heart. And like Tim said, it doesn't have to be the superintendent. You know who your all-stars are in terms of caring about kids. So in other words, on the Together Initiative Network, uh, we have about seven or eight school district personnel in there. So And, and sometimes there are power numbers. So recruiting those all-star people that really care about kids, I think would be your first step because now – you got uh, that 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 number power, and uh, you can go from there and create your own committee. And if it's seven school district members and a, a pastor and a township representative, you have something started. And what will happen is you'll build connections through those other sectors, and they'll start thinking of people that are like-minded, and it will uh, hopefully Yeah, that's well said. Uh, we like to ask that question, how can we help? It's a simple question, but it, it drives cultural values for the Together Initiative Network, and it also, I think, can really bring collaboration around the table. When Eric and I sat down at Friendly's that one um, one day and, and talked, I told him, I think he recounted this earlier, I said, Eric, if we could give you twenty five grand and 4,000 man hours this summer to do something that otherwise you couldn't do, you know, what, what would you get done? What I wanted to do was relieve the artificial burden of resources that we all live with, and we think, we tend to think, if only I had more, whatever, more money, more time, more people, I could do more. And my assumption was actually what we need more of is vision and clarity and systems. We need people who can clarify vision because there are people in our community who want to help and want to collaborate. And so asking that question, I would ask, how can I help? I would also ask if I could, if we could find, if we could find name the number. I said 25,000. Now we're functioning on a budget of about 300,000. So I was way too short. I should have said if we could find a half a million dollars, what would you do? But I wanted to make it a little more practical. By the way, I didn't have the money at all, um, but I figured it could come in the community. So I put that out there and it, we began to dream a little bit. So it's a combination, I think, of asking the how can we help? How can we serve you? What are you? What's really on your heart? And also how can we uh, provide a little bit of encouragement to keep dreaming a little bit uh, and kind of weaving those two together? It starts with lunch as well. So we just had a lot of lunch, breakfast, and meetings, and um, and just talked and began to hear what the vision for the community was and how we can serve each other. Hope that helps, Sharon. And, and just starting, and, and Tim just brings up a good point. Think about going up to somebody from a different sector and saying basically what he said to me, what can we do for you? A lot of times... 
uh, I learned as a superintendent, you say, hey, uh, could you help us do this? Uh, and that intrigued me right away and showed a lot about Tim's character. And uh, I knew right then that I wanted to partner with him. Great. Christy asked if you have any practical suggestions about helping alleviate fears people may have about giving up their individuality or desire to work for their own good so we can work for the greater good. That's a great question. Um, again, we didn't we didn't just come up with this committee. I think uh, I was able to give up my individuality or at least take some chances uh, because uh, this whole friendship started with trust first. So I think if you if your foundation and you get three people, that's all it really takes, two or three people that have that foundation of trust, you'll be able to loosen up that individuality and actually work better as a group and take some chances because you're not only taking chances for yourself, you're taking chances for the group and, and people appreciate uh, risk takers and will probably follow you. That's great. Um, and Christy, I don't know if this will work in your context or not, but I like to encourage people to reverse engineer their life and think about the end in light of where they're at now. So in other words, if someone is struggling with this desire to kind of push for their own interests, because we tend to be that way sometimes as leaders in our own organizations, if I'm able to um, lovingly, gently, but carefully draw them out and say, listen, what do you want people to say about you at your funeral? Like, do you want them to say that you know Tim Rogers was this awesome individual and has a lot of personal accomplishments and helped just his organization, or what? What if, like, what if your life could actually be spent in something greater, in drawing together people well beyond your own organization's strength? And what if you were this kind of collaborative leader that brought unity around not just your organization but beyond? Like, what is your vision for this life, and to what degree do you want to um, have your life be spent and kind of burned out in the uh, service of the community at large? Like, if at the end of the day, people aren't going to remember how awesome your individual accomplishments were, no matter how hard you try now. So kind of helping people see that and reverse engineer that life to say, Ooh, you know, let's let's come on back to what's most important, which is why, like, I'll go back to someone like a Wilberforce or Washington. The reason we're still talking about them today is because of that deep love for people and that deep acknowledgement of life is not just about me from Washington especially. It's going to be about how do I bring unity around this and then step out so that my power-hungry nature doesn't take over and I serve the people around me. So uh, some people are going to be getting that and some just, just aren't. Um, but, but hopefully um, some of those questions or perspectives may be a little help to you. And we, we've been asked to... Uh... To speak at some organization, we'd be glad to do so. I mean, so they could see that, hey, we're still standing type thing, and that might alleviate some fears also. So we'd be glad to do that. Well, I want to echo what Michelle is saying. I want to thank Tim, thank Eric for volunteering your time today. We absolutely appreciate it. Took the time out of your days to join us. Thanks, guys. Honored to be with you all. Thank you. This has been an AHA Process webinar podcast. Visit ahaprocess.com for more. Courtesy of sound.